Welcome to this episode of Print Run. My name is Eric Hain, and with me as always is Laura Zatz. Say hello, Laura. Hello. So today is May 8th, and we've got a pretty fun episode for you today. We've got a few news items, and then um, we are going to be talking about our reading lives and how they've sort of changed over the course of our lives from education and do our now uh, young professional careers and how reading sort of um, – you know, what that what role it has in your life kind of changes as you get older, especially as you're someone who works in books, you know. Um, but before we before we get there, why don't we handle the basics? Yeah. So the basics are pretty simple this week. Um, this Thursday, May 11th, is our special Patreon query show. Mm-hmm. And our special first pages show is May 25th, which is also a Thursday. Um, if you want to listen to our special episodes where we critique real first pages and real queries, um, go to patreon.com and search for Print Run Podcast. Also, if you want to submit your query and first page for us to critique online, on the radio, online, technology makes it very confusing. Anyway, send it to us at printrunpodcast at gmail.com. Sounds good. So I've got some bad news, Eric. (laughs) I think I know what this is. And the bad news (laughs) is that our boy, JP, Uh James motherfucking Patterson. And I hate that we keep talking about him every week, um, but he keeps doing funny things every week. Our boy, James Patterson, friend of the podcast, Uh capital F, capital P. I hope he knows that he's a friend. I hope so. I think he does. Open invitation to you, James, in case you're listening. Well, he's busy because here's what. (laughs) He's picked his next co-author. And it's not you. What? Wait, so I wish that it was me because I sent in that thing. Oh, you actually sent it in? <laughs> um, Folks, was... if, you, if you're if you a new listener to Print Run, um, James Patterson was holding a big competition, basically, uh-huh. where it, you wrote a little bit of a thriller and sent it in and he'll you know choose the winner or whatever to right. like co-write a thriller right. with him yeah, for just, lots of money and that's fame. how I was gonna get out of the podcast game. Yeah. I was gonna. <laughs> so Eric did it and it was very bad. Wow. Wow. We could have we could have talked about that off air probably if you it, had such an issue with my writing. It was it was very bad <laughs> in the best possible way. He read it on air. Um oh, anyway. and you were not chosen. Instead I who's his co-author? He's uh he's It's Bill Clinton. Oh, well, great. It's the former president, (laughs) Bill Clinton. Yeah, so Bill Clinton and him, I'm looking at this little thing that we pulled up, the Publishers Weekly article on it. And the bit that I'm finding, like, the most annoying and insulting about the fact that James Patterson and Bill Clinton are writing a thriller called The President is Missing (laughs) (laughs) um, is that – it's basically, basically they're going to do this up until publication where they say it's filled with information that only the president can know as though like somehow this thriller is going to contain things that are just going to blow my mind simply because like Bill Clinton is involved. In Maybe the they'll tell us it. how many boogers are underneath the desk That's in the Oval it, like, Office. I, yeah, no, I mean it's just going to be like stuff like – and then <laughs> um, you hear James says – Working with President Clinton has been the highlight of my career, and having access to his firsthand experience has uniquely informed the writing of this novel. So, oh God, I just I just hate this kind of stuff. I have to be honest; it just makes it makes my skin crawl. Um, but uh, yeah, so apparently Bill Clinton is a thriller writer now. Yep, it's um, coming out June twenty eighteen. 
so a little over a year from now. My favorite part is that this book is uh-huh. a big enough book that it is uh-huh. being jointly published by two different big five publishers. Which ones? Uh, Knopf Doubleday Publishing and the Hachette Book Group. Uh-huh. So, wow. yeah, yeah. Because yeah. JP is with Hachette and Bill Clinton apparently has been with Knopf yeah. for wow. ever, ever. So, well, this yeah. is what we, so this is what we've talked. I mean, this is obviously very funny to, to me. I hope, hopefully to you. No, it's but, very serious, Eric. Uh, the president is missing. <laughs> the, I, it's such a, I feel like it's such a clunky title, too. It is a terrible like, why title. Why not just like missing president? Or yeah. like literally anything that doesn't involve like a basic declarative sentence. Yeah, I, I mean, I feel like James James Patterson is usually really good with. They're titles. real sharp. Yeah, it's like Alex Cross or like NYPD Red. Yeah. Yeah. Or the Black Book, or yeah. y- you know. Yeah, yeah, I don't yeah. Know. yeah. Um, anyway, <laughs> we've kind of talked about how publishers, and this is going to get into the next thing we talk about too, but um, have become sort of more and more inclined to do the giant authors, you know, and rely on those. And as you'll see, the in big the, deals, the, yeah, the one book, yeah, the, yeah, exactly, the one book by the someone by the person they know will sell, by the person who's a proven name for things that have nothing to do with writing books. Um, though, I mean, here maybe that's a special case because obviously James Patterson is famous for writing books, but so is Bill Clinton. I mean, he's I'm famous for a lot in, of other things. So, do you but. think? Let me ask you this question: Do you think this book will sell more copies than a regular James Patterson novel? No. I don't. I just think that like sometimes James Patterson buyers mm-hmm. are going Like are there Bill to... Clinton heads out there who want to read his like commercial thriller? I don't think so. That's my question. I don't think so. I think I mean like I think the only thing people want to hear from Bill Clinton right now is like how he won the presidency twice and Hillary didn't win it once. <laughs> like you know what I mean? Yeah. Um it just seems like a weird political move on that front. Yeah. Um no, I don't know. I think I think it's gonna sell. It's gonna be amongst the best of his selling books, JP's books. Sure. I mean, um, yeah. I just don't, I guess my I, I ask because, like, how many more people are gonna buy a James Patterson book that are that already aren't buying? Like, this book is gonna sell millions of copies, probably. Oh yeah. I would guess, but like, how many? Like, I yeah, it's, it's just an interesting question. Like, eventually, do you hit the cap of how many people are willing to buy a book like this? And does adding and has James Patterson already hit it, which you could probably argue that he has, and does adding a name like this make more people want to buy it? I guess I'm just really interested in the reader who, like, doesn't like James Patterson but would buy the Bill Clinton novel. I mean, obviously, I'm going to buy this book and read it because I'm, <laughs> I'm incredibly intrigued we about need to find out what, about the boogers yeah, under no, the desk. I, I want to yeah. know what specific information that only a president can know is in my James Patterson book, you know? I think, and I think this kind of ties in with the next thing I want to talk about, which is I'm um, an article in the outline written by Tolulope Edianwe, and I I hope I'm pronouncing that right. I might not be, and I apologize if not. Um, but the article is called, and it came out on the third. It looks like as bestseller lists are cut, a looming disaster for publishers. And basically, here I'll just read the quick first paragraph here. Uh, three months ago, New York Times cut 10 categories from its bestsellers list, including manga, paperback, and hardcover graphic novels, children's middle grade paperbacks and ebooks, young adult paperbacks and ebooks, ebook fiction and nonfiction, and paperback mass market fiction. Um, there's still 14 categories. Um, including hardcover and paperback fiction, other cat- other children's categories, and business books. Um, so I think at first 
this can feel like a fairly innocuous thing, right? Yeah, the New York it's, Times it's, as an effort, matter? like, and you'll see, you know, throughout this article, it kind of explains why they do it, um, which just to spend to cover these things differently, right? They didn't want to waste the page space or whatever on to print the, a list when they could the have more interviews or exactly. articles like, or they, reviews. So or... they've made this like seemingly innocuous change to their books covers, right? They've gotten rid of the list on a few different categories, ten categories, and. They promise to cover those things, those in, topics in, in other ways. ways. Right, exactly. Um, and that sounds all fine and good. But why do you think um, that raises some real alarm bells? Because oh. it certainly does for me. And I want to hear why it yeah, does for you. Yeah, so I think the first thing to note is that in the three months since these have been cut, they have been increasing you know, reviews. They have been increasing mm-hmm. interviews. But there hasn't been an increase or a special focus on featuring books that were then cut in the bestseller list. Right. Um, and so – You know, if you take like fiction hardcover, that is a huge category, right? Like that is truly going to tell you what is moving the most. And they're big names. You know, Mm -hmm. it's, you know, Donna Tartt and James Patterson and and Stephen King. And these are huge names. Um, Once you get to the smaller categories like hardcover graphic novels, that – there aren't as many people. And so if somebody is liking graphic novels, for instance, which have been gaining traction in the marketplace in the United States – and gaining respect as mm-hmm. a medium, mm-hmm. um, somebody looking at this list might discover a book or an author that they've never heard of, which mm-hmm. is something that I think it's pretty safe to say is not really going to happen in the big categories, the ones that are still left in the same way. Yeah. And I, so, I mean, and to your point, um, you know, all the authors you listed who are the kind of the perennial um, people who appear on like the hardcover fiction list. Those people are getting press and things anyway. elsewhere, right? Like, and probably a lot of the New York Times book section is often about those people, in addition to having their names in the bestseller list. Because they're for sure going to have reviews. You know, they're yeah. still going to want the yeah. column inches with the New York Times' hot take on the next right. JP novel. Well, okay, so for me, the reason um, the reason this is a problem is because the bestseller list is much more than just a list of sales. It's it's not just like the standings, you know what I mean? It's a piece of publicity in and of itself, and it's a tool. And as you as you see in this article, like um, the fear is that there's a certain amount of exposure and celebration that happens in a very public space for certain types of books and certain types of authors who might not otherwise be covered. Um, that's gone missing, you know, like. Appearing on a bestseller list, albeit even one of these, you know, supposedly, I mean, well, not supposedly, they are smaller categories, but, um, you know, that matters to people who read those things. And that matters if you're an author. It legitimizes not these only, smaller things. Well, it, for, yes, it does. It does legitimize them because you can then say, um, you know, there's a certain marketing and publicity appeal, you know, and if you're like a debut fiction writer and you, or any writer, graphic novel writer, and you get um, on one of these lists – you know, that's fuel that you can use to open up more opportunities, right? Like when you talk about trying to break an author out, um, this is one of the great reasons you have to being able to do it. It's like being able to say, hey, do you want this person on your radio show? Do you want this person on, you know, to review this person's book? Being able to say this author is a bestseller is a great way to garner traction, right? And so you're kind of cutting off a lot of otherwise very successful people from their chance at kind of gaining ground, in their career. Yeah. And the other thing I think that kind of sticks with me about it is is its exposure, right? It's like you were saying. Um, it's a list that serves just to see the names in print. Like, 
you know, you come across books this way. People use the bestseller list not to see who's in number one and who's in number four, but to just hear about books, to go look them up. And when you take off some of those categories, um, you know, it makes it tricky to follow certain – it makes it tricky to know – Um, where to find certain things. There's an editor that's been anonymously quoted in this article. They work at Penguin Random House. um, And they called this a dilemma of the problem of continued consolidation. Mm -hmm. Um, And what that means is it's, you know, I feel like the New York Times doing this is reflecting something, a phenomenon that we've talked about before earlier on in this episode and in previous episodes in general. Um, about publishers more and more relying on that blockbuster dynamic, yeah. you know, the big advances for the big names that they know are going to get, yeah. you know, let them make their payroll. Yeah. Um, and that is, you know, like, I, I guess it's a fine way of doing business, but it, it's having, there's evidence now that that's having real true effects on the way that books are selling. Um, so the outline article has an infographic here where they tracked book sales in three categories, graphic novels, romance, and in mass market paperback. And romance and mass market paperback are very often um, combined in some way because a lot of romance novels that are printed are printed in mass market paperback. Mass market paperback, how many times can I say that word? Um, <laughs> that term. If you're not yeah. familiar, they're like the really little It's the ones you see stubby, in like a grocery store. Yeah, they're yeah. the ones in the grocery store. They're yeah. the ones with like Fabio on the cover. Yeah. Like the little the little ones, the yeah. cheap ones are like $7.99 or right. less. And, right. you know. So they tracked the sales for these three categories from January 1st to April 16th in 2016 and 2017. Mm. And the big the big change being that in 2017, the New York Times cut these yeah, sections. Sure. Graphic novels and mass market paperbacks have decreased in sales 5% and 6% respectively. And romance novels have decreased 10% yeah, in so, sales. <laughs> so that's, I think, a very natural I, – I mean, I, I can't imagine it's going to get better. You know, like that feels like the beginning of a trend, not yeah. the end of one. Yeah, it does. And, and one thing, you know, you know, we're talking about exposure for authors, um, how this is good for, you know, developing young careers. You know, the bestseller moniker is something that in publishing, you know, obviously, you know, there maybe are some people who um, really hate the, you know, they want the bestseller thing to mean something. And so they want, you know, fewer lists so that if a bestseller is a true bestseller, which is kind of, a, I think, a silly stance because um, – you know, I don't think there's anything wrong with having a, being on a specific category list. You know, I don't know. It's like as long as not yeah. it's an, it, as long as it's not Amazon's like young yeah. adult contemporary <laughs> yeah, exactly. romance exactly. tattoo as long books as for not, yeah, exactly. Christians like, I don't in think, the South. Like yeah. sometimes, yeah, exactly. Sometimes people can get a little kind of you know they make sort of the stupid participation trophy arguments about the bestseller list when they're like, oh, there's so many of these, it doesn't mean anything. But I feel like but, a hardcover graphic novel should no, not exactly. be in no, the hardcover no, fiction a, right, exactly. category. For a category, it's different audiences, it's different. Um, but one thing I don't think that um, really gets discussed much is a publisher incentive here. Like publishers also like being on the bestseller list. You know, they like having that as sort of a brand builder. Um, you know, editors like acquiring books that they can then say were bestsellers and award winners. Um, and so if you're making a decision to acquire one of these books in a category that's been slashed, um, you know, you used to be able to say, well, hey, maybe I could make it a bestseller on this list. And 
I can use that as, um, you know, we could, it could be a real success story. Um, that particular bit of the story is now gone. And so you wonder if, I wonder if part of the, one of the trends that we won't see yet is acquisitions in these categories. Mm. You know, it's like if you take away and take away and take away um, the incentives to, pu- to acquire and publish books that, um, you know, the media is doing less and less and less of a job of covering, um, what have we seen in literally every episode? All we've ever talked about is how risk-averse publishers are, is how they don't want to take risks. They want, it, they want the sure things and they want the easiest grab at, um, you know, a success story that they can find. And you've just taken away a big avenue of a lot of success stories. And so, like, we can joke about, um, you know, Bill Clinton and James Patterson teaming up for a book, but, like, that's where we're headed, you know? We're headed toward the places. Um, we're the headed, sellers at two different houses we're headed, teaming up. We're, yeah. headed to, uh, we're headed to a place where the only people who are on the bestseller list are the people who don't need the bestseller list. And I think that that's... Um, I don't know. I just I it kind of it worries me. It's because, a bummer. And um, and the New York Times is really definitely a a, a pioneer and a thought leader yeah. in bestseller lists. Like yeah. there are other bestseller lists. Yeah, but guess are. what? But, what matters more and most than the USA Today bestseller list? Yeah. Uh, it's the New York Times no, bestseller. And list. And you see that you know it sounds like you know there is some push to you know come up with an alternative list and all this kind of stuff, and that's great. And I hope that that happens. Um, but like. It's going to take a while to build yourself into the New York Times bestseller list. Like that's a, um, you know, that's a name. Like when you say the bestseller list, you mean the New York Times. Yeah. Like you don't mean anything. It's like when else. you say the crossword, you mean the New York Times <laughs> exactly. crossword. Exactly. Um, and so it's just um, obviously, you know, you can kind of understand why they do it. Maybe they wanted to cover things in a different way. But, you know, you hope that there's follow through on the actual coverage of those ends. Yeah. Um, but I have I have kind of good news, <laughs> better news <laughs> do you? about book reading and publishing. Um, (laughs) so this is, this is from the guardian who we can always count on to, to make the publishing world seem a little bit less bleak. Um, so there's an article that the guardian published that is talking about how dating websites are reporting that people who are on their websites and Mm -hmm. say that they're readers Mm -hmm are more successful in getting dates and finding love. So the readers are getting laid. The readers are getting laid because they read. <laughs> yes. Um, but my favorite part about this is not <coughs> is is not just that they read. Um, it's that it's like oddly gendered. Hmm. Uh, <laughs> specifically with men who like to read uh, receive 19 more. 19% more messages, and women who like to read receive only 3% okay, more. Okay, so why do we – hold on. Let's talk about why that disparity in percentages. Mm. Um, I think it's because women, um, correctly, don't think that men read any books. Correct. And so <laughs> uh, when, you know, a man on one of these – especially on, like, one of these apps where I feel like maybe you've probably scrolled through a bunch of not-so-great men um, – you know, seeing someone who like claims to be literate might be refreshing. Um, as somebody who has online <laughs> dated, that is indeed refreshing. Yeah. As long as they're not like Brett Easton Ellis, right. is my favorite. <laughs> That's the one. That is the one that always appears, isn't it's, it? It's always that, or um, God, who's the other? Who's the other writer that like all twenty-something guys Chuck love? Polinick. No, not Chuck Polinick. It's um, Polinick. I don't know how to say his name. It's Polinick, oh, like you. Paula and yeah. Nick. Two first names as a last name. Oh wow. Uh, yeah. I don't know. I can't remember. Mostly just Brett Easton Ellis, yeah. right? Yeah. So, um, yeah, I think it's also assumed, rightly so. I mean, the data supports this that women read more than men. Yeah. 
Um, so that's not even well, so, just like a perception. That's like an actual scientific truth. So you used you used these apps. I did too. Um, you were on there. Were you looking for men who were reading? Like, did that matter to you at all? Uh, it did. Yeah. It did matter. I definitely like put it in there when I was on an app. I, like, <laughs> loves books, you know, like some stupid line like that. You had um, something about you being an <laughs> editor from New York City. Like you just took it to the 10th degree. I didn't do it that much. That was – no, 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 no. No, no, no. Um, no, I definitely brought it up um, because, like, yeah, because I, for whatever reason, like, it's it, it's the, sexy. No, but I, but I think that's so funny that people um, that re, that reading something that fundamental. And we're going to talk about just how fundamental it is. Um, something that fundamental could be um, such a novelty. Yeah. Well, so here's here's so, yeah, another thing. There's though. some other good tidbits in this. There's article. so when, so beyond just the genderedness uh-huh. of you know women receiving. Well, there's specific fewer, books mentioned. Yep, yep. So there's specific books mentioned, and this is specifically from eHarmony.com. Oh, so yes. this is eHarmony. Yeah. So like a okay. big one. Okay, so that's a that, a big one, but a certain one. But a certain one. Like I feel like <laughs> beyond the. Um, parameters of this show, we could break down what we feel the, the difference between eHarmony and Tinder. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so the there are specific books yeah. that boost a person's yeah. profile. So when they list their favorite books for women, uh, the biggest boost in popularity are wim- for women who list The Hunger Games mm. as one of their favorite books. Really? Yes, The Hunger Games for men. Listing Richard Branson's business books. <laughs> Wait, so um, <laughs> listing, you're telling me that um, I could have had more success on a dating app if I had put Richard Branson's business books yeah. in the profile. I actually didn't know anything about Richard Branson's well, we looked, yeah, business books, a, but we looked it up. Well, so he's the CEO of Virgin. Yeah, like right. Virgin Mobile, yeah. Virgin Airlines. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. yeah, he just started everything called Virgin. So he's yeah. got all of these business books mm-hmm. that are – like tongue-in-cheek sexual puns about being a virgin. <laughs> okay, so um, I've got like, you know, the little Google page for him pulled up and it's got like all his books at the top here. Um, and you've got titles such as, and these are all like ostensibly, yeah, business books or something, you know, kind of very bland like personal, you know, success win kind of stuff. Um, we've got one called Losing My Virginity. We've got Screw It, Let's Do It. Uh, we've got Like a Virgin, uh, The Virgin Way, Screw Business as Usual. And then, oh, oh, business, business stripped bear. And then, <laughs> this is a funny one. Let's not screw it. Let's just do it. What? I don't know. But anyway, so if you had listed any of those, um, you're definitely attracting more women, apparently. Yeah. So uh, apparently women are more attractive when they read about children in a dystopian society yeah. killing each other. Um, men are more attractive when they are reading slightly sexual business books and both genders listed because, you know, I'm sure eHarmony only lists two genders. Um, they receive a bump with the girl with the dragon tattoo. So the middle ground there is a violent Scandinavian <laughs> mystery. Scandinavian domestic murders. <laughs> great. Um, that's great. Oh, one more Richard, uh, one more uh, Richard Branson book here. We've got, and I don't know how this fits into the rest of them, but we've got Globalization Laid Bare. <laughs> so that's when uh, Richard took a few years off and started watching Alex Jones or something. <laughs> but, <laughs> anyway. Um, yeah. So that's so. So if you read any of those books, congratulations, you're sexy. No, definitely put in. Definitely put books in your uh, profile, though. I remember I looked for 
um, women who claim to read in their profile. I thought that was good. Mostly because it's, like, the only thing I, like, know how to talk about. So, like, yeah, if she had, like, interests that, like, weren't that, you know, I'd probably be a terrible bore on the date. So yeah. it was more in self-defense. I looked for that, too, but then yeah. I ended up with somebody who doesn't read. <laughs> and you ended up with a scientist, so. Yeah, she reads, though. So yeah. that's good. Okay, well, you win. Fine. Yeah, I win the book war. That's <laughs> right. <laughs> All right. Anyway. Um. So <laughs> related to that. Um, the main topic today is quite simply the reading lifestyle, right? And I think we wanted to talk about it because we had sort of <laughs> – I think it was me um, who first kind of touched on it a few um, – about a week ago. And um, we were just kind of talking about how reading in our life has changed and how as you kind of grow up, you learn to, uh, you learn to fall in love in, with books, right? Like it's, whole, it's a whole process of like going to the store or the library – and like picking one and then like taking it home or like having it read to you at school and like, like hearing the the binding crack for the yeah, first time. Yeah, it's like time such a like and... beautiful experience. You know, it's such an um like a escape. It's this whole um you know, it's like a very nice quaint thing and then you get to college and it becomes sort of this metonymy for um, intellectual development. It becomes the seeing you're being exposed to all this art. And like how these, can I wear a black turtleneck and the, drink exactly, an espresso exactly. and these, read poetry? All this art, all these ideas, all these things. You know, it's how you study. Um, and then you get into our jobs where I just read like the first two paragraphs something and then get furious and close the document and start tweeting. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so – I was a little bit frustrated with my new reading life, which seems to be read two paragraphs, throw a temper tantrum, and then go online about it. Um, and so what do you – like you're someone who spent a long time wanting to be in books. Um, how do you feel that your reading life has changed mm. since you became someone whose job it suddenly is to read? Well, I think I wanted to read more – back then. Like quite simply when it like So why is that? So I don't think I don't know if everybody kind of has this feeling, but like do you ever like on like at like 10 a.m. on a Saturday and you wake up and the sun is shining in through the window and you just like feel like in your heart that like you just want to like open a book and be on this couch yeah. And, like, go into another world. Yeah. Right? Like, that is – for me, that is a very specific emotional feeling. Mm-hmm. Kind of like um, – it actually, like, reminds me a lot of, like, hunger mm-hmm. or, like, sleepiness. It, it's like an impulse kind of. Yeah. And when I was younger, I would have that impulse every day. Like, yeah. I would have this feeling and it was, and it's, like, an actual physical feeling in my chest yeah. where all I want to do is do that. And I still feel that feeling, mm-hmm. that that wanting to open up a book and kind of sink into it and be comfortable physically and engaged mentally and entertained. Yeah. And But it doesn't happen very often. Or when it does happen, like I need to be doing something else. Well, so that was going <laughs> to be my question because yeah. I, I feel kind of the same way, which is that – I think I feel like, you know, reading early on in your life um, and really I think all the way through college, it still kind of holds that um, that's special. Mm-hmm. Like it's, spe- it's like a leisure activity usually or it's like a studying thing. But you've, it's got sort of a um, 
you know, nice shine to it. It's got a shine Um, to it because at least when it's in college and it's work, you have this feeling that that's where the knowledge lies. And that's that's, where, and that's where you, and it has a, it has a feeling where like, you know, like if you, when you're a kid, there's so many incentives to read. And when you're in college, there's so many. Free pizza, free personal pan pizzas. Yeah, exactly. You can do those kind of things. Or like when you're in college, you know, it's, um, you know, your whole education is practically based on, you know, having done the reading. Um, most people's was I didn't do the reading. You so never did the reading. I, I didn't say never. You didn't do the reading. You I, were one of those. I often didn't do the reading. I always um, did the reading. I know you did. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but now, so it's the place you were supposed to be, right? Reading was where you should be. When you were reading a book, I remember if I wanted to like get mom and dad off my back, I would sit and read, right? Because there was no way mom was going to come in and tell me to quit reading. That's actually, like, yeah. <laughs> and like, so... But now when I pick up a leisure book, like where when I just like go to the bookstore and buy something and I start reading, there's always those little voices, right? And I guess maybe that's something to just do with like adult responsibility. But like reading doesn't feel as pure to me anymore. Mm. And it almost feels like if I'm going to spend some time reading, why aren't you reading the slush pile? Why aren't you reading your manuscript submissions? Um, so like it's hard. Like reading feels like something I have to remind myself to do right now. And I do read a lot or I try. You um, – yeah, I think it's safe to say that you read for fun more than I do. Probably um, because I kind of am trying to carve a way out of it. But it feels weird that I have to carve that space out. And I think it's interesting because, um, you know, people in publishing, they sort of pick that life because they think it's going to be reading books. And it is reading books, but it's just like it's different and it becomes sort of a different task. And I think that – with something as fundamental to your life as reading is, it's weird to watch it change and take different shapes. Do you know what? It, it's more for me than just like having that feeling versus reading when I don't have that feeling. I have fundamentally changed the way that I read. Um, when mm-hmm. I was younger, I would I I was a voracious rereader. Yeah. And I would oh, a rereader. Rereader. Yeah. Yeah, so like some of my favorite books as a child, like I can't open up and read anymore because pages will fall out. You know, yeah. like I would reread books and it was very much like, you know, some kids had stuffed animals, some kids, mm-hmm. you know, I don't know what other safety blankets are, whatever. Yeah. But like I would when I was feeling upset or like I was going through like puberty and like I had feelings and changes like I would just like sit and reread these same books yeah um, and they weren't even like necessarily my most favorite books but there were books I had an emotional response to they were um well there's something interesting there yeah. because reading is something you're doing as sort of a task to help process your life mm-hmm. you know like you're reading because that's where the only place or the best place you know to turn um, when, you know, you're changing or your life is changing or, you know, something has happened. It's like books are that comfort or that source of information or that anything. And I guess, like, how do you – so do you feel like that now? I haven't reread a book in probably – I mean, discounting things I read multiple times for different classes in college. Like, I haven't reread a book in a decade. Why don't you? So why not? Um, so I I was chewing on this this week, and I think that when I reread things before, mm-hmm. um, I would reread things and be at a different stage in my life every time I read them. Like even like if I read a book a month apart, 
yeah. you know, the same book twice. Yeah. And I could get different things out of it. And now it's kind of a combination of why would I reread something when I have so many other books to read? And also I don't have that same sort of sense of discovery as I did anymore with like going over the same text well, over and, and over again. I mean, so that discovery impulse I think is interesting because um, theoretically your job is that discovery impulse. Yeah, right. Your job is trying to, uh, you know, discover books. It's trying to find that and then not only find that but find books that other people will feel that way about, right? Yeah. And I don't know. It's like it's almost to me it feels like – and I wonder if I had done it again, if I would have picked – you know, knowing how much I like reading – um, and I knew everything I did. Um, if I'd pick books again as like my job, mm. you know, because it's like there's kind of that work-life balance question always. It's like, do you want to make the thing you like most also your job, or do you want to just have it to be occupy the same sort of pure leisurely space it always has? And um, you know, I kind of waffle back and forth on it um, because one, you know, on the plus side, I love, um, you know, I love what I do. I love working on this stuff. I really like. The idea of you know making these things and kind of getting your hands dirty in the whole process, but um, I definitely like books are work in a yeah. way that they never were. Even when you're when you know you're studying them and you're you know getting ready for classes and having to read those, like it's still not work in the same way that it is now. You know, and I don't know. I guess like it kind of in a weird way, it loops back to some of our conversations about like platforms for reading, like whether it's audiobooks or ebooks or hardcovers or paperbacks. Um, and I think um, it's part of the reason I really like buying hardcovers for uh, my personal reading, mm-hmm. just because it feels like more of a event. Yeah, you know what I mean. Like, and I like you know all those feelings that um, you know I have tied into, you know, books that I'm trying to recapture. And I feel like so much of reading is trying to find something you've lost, you know? When I So I was at a writing conference this weekend. I was at the Dallas-Fort sure. Worth Writers yeah. Conference. And it's always really interesting. You know, I always get asked, would you take on a book that you knew would sell really well, mm-hmm. but you don't really like that much? And yeah. the easy answer, the answer that I feel like a lot of agents give or a lot of editors give is no, because I'm going to have to be rereading this book so many times. But I yeah. think what that gets to is is kind of a more true answer. Uh-huh. And, you know, I have never once questioned whether I should sign a book or not. And I think it's because – in my job as either. an agent, yeah. in my job as an agent, all of the books that I've signed and, and you know, there are a lot of books that I read that I love that yeah. I that I don't sign. Right. Um, and I think the big difference is that the ones that I do sign, I feel that same sense of discovery and I feel that same kind of impulse that this work yeah. will change as I reread it, and it will change as I go through it. It has something in it that's going to make it worth coming back to you again and again and again. Yeah, and yeah. It, I mean, and that that is not just a good book. Like yeah. that is that is something that is very nebulous and very ephemeral, ephemeral and very personal. Well, so do you feel that like that? I get that. You know, I've given that answer before too. Like, oh, you can't sign something you don't want to have to that you're not going to like reading the fifth time, right? Because you're gonna, and that's like how. 
um, you know, it's usually just a stand-in for the argument of you shouldn't sign that book. Yeah. Because it means that anyone who would ask, it probably means you wouldn't want to read it the fifth time. It's kind of, it's sort of used as a reason to say no, yeah. right? Um, but I was thinking, I'm I'm not so sure that, you know, just thinking about it aloud right now, is that a good enough reason to say no to a book? Because it gets back to what we're talking about with this reading experience. Like, just because I've read it six times doesn't mean that somebody else somebody will. else is going to. And it doesn't mean they're going to read it in the same sort of clinically detached professional way I am. You know what I mean? Um, so sometimes I wonder, and this kind of gets at our point, I think, of all this, is that we read differently than other people. Yeah. And because we have to do it in a way that is more efficient and just like, you know, it's work. Like if you, anyone listening, like whatever your job is, you know, books related or not, it's probably, even if you like it, it's probably not necessarily fun, right? Like there's a work aspect to it. You're in work mode. And it feels very strange to have my, um, that work mode kind of placed over reading. But that, but what, but let me figure out how to get to this point here. Um, it's strange then because part of our job is to figure out how to think about other people's reading experiences, even though we're having a different one as we read, if that makes sense. I know I'm rambling a little, yeah. but like it's almost like we have to guess at what other people are going to feel when they read a book, you know? So so here's, here's kind of my dirty secret. Uh-huh. I don't actually think about what other people are going to feel when they read the book. <laughs> like I feel I, – I think about that as far as like implications sure. in terms of like plot points or something yeah. or like if you make yeah. this fat joke, like that's shitty yeah. or whatever. Yeah. But um, I, I think the answer is, is that a good – like is not having that kind of discoverability failing a good enough reason to turn down a book? No. But the answer right. is, is that like – I'm an individual and it is not my responsibility to try to get every single book published and this sure. is not a fair business and I feel like the in a way like the I feel like the only way that I can keep reading from becoming 100% work 100% of the time is to only allow my work to have those little moments, those little bright spots of, you know, yeah. I'm, you know, those couple of books a year yeah. that remind me what it's like to be reading as a child. Sure. Well, so it's sort of, um, you know, what you're saying though, you know, if you don't, I, I guess I might, you know, argue with you a little on the discounting, you know, I think that I often think about, okay, what's a reader going to get out of this book or what's he going to, what's he or she going to feel um, you know, while they read, not because I'm someone who feels it's my, you know, it's like some like cosmic duty to like address those concerns, but rather, um, you know, finding a book that you feel might do that is probably just simply a good work decision. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like part of the job, and this is kind of what I'm trying to get at here, is it's almost you have to make detached, calculated choices based on other people's feelings, which is kind of strange in a way. It's like, I think that people are going to feel things reading this book, you know, and it's like you have to almost think like that because you yourself aren't necessarily feeling something because those, sen you know, that those sensory inputs have just been beaten to hell by the fact that it's your job now. You know what I mean? I, and, I think that way, but yeah. I think that way after I decide to yeah. sign a book, then yeah. I figure those things out. And it's, to be fair, probably not um, as successful of a way of doing business yeah. as you do it. 
Well, I don't know. <laughs> we'll find out. I don't yeah. know. Um, yeah, but I, I answer those questions later. Like, I shoot first, ask questions later. Yeah. Because I can't <clears throat> be unique on that front. Like, there, I, I can't. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I can't be the only one that, you know, is reminded of of being a, a 12-year-old nerd sitting on the floor of the, yeah. you know, of a bay in Barnes & Noble, like, yeah. discovering new worlds, like, yeah. with a story. Like, I can't yeah. be the only one for that book. Yeah. Um, I find myself sometimes, like, if I have a manuscript um, that I haven't read yet, but I got the submission and maybe I really, really liked the query and was really excited to see the pages, um, I'll try to recreate that experience in my house. Do you ever do this? Where... You know, you get one in, it's, like, really promising. You're, like, really excited about it. So I'll, like, really, like, set aside time on, like, a weekend to read specifically that one. And You'll maybe, text me about it beforehand. Yeah, like, yeah exactly. Like, or may, maybe it's, like, you know, it just came in and I've got a few others I'm supposed to read before it. But I, I let it skip in line and, like, you know, make a special, you know, little pot of coffee or something and, like, really try to create that sort of leisurely feel while you're reading something different. And I find myself – I guess maybe that's what I feel is the biggest – difference now in my reading life. It's like when I was in college, and I'm sure lots and lots of people can relate to this, um, reading was so such a natural thing to just do and get lost in, you know? You did it in classes. You know, I remember I took like these, you know, poetry survey classes where we'd like meet like once a week for like five hours and just like read poetry and everyone would be just totally high on caffeine and, you know, the maybe on other things. Yeah, too. yeah. The teacher was definitely like on painkillers. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, but it, it was just like this thing to get lost in. It was just this fun thing. And but now it's like anytime I want to get lost, you have to like plan for that. Like there's no like I feel like I get swept away way less. So what? You know? Okay. And, so what is your what is your like getting prepared to be romanced by the book? Yeah, yeah. Look yeah. like okay. like what is what is that? Okay. System? So the, the first thing I do is turn everything off. You gotta turn the computer off. You gotta turn your phone off. You gotta just don't like, you read on the computer though? Uh, you mean you turn your Wi-Fi off? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Exactly. Well, I, I guess I was thinking of like a, I was thinking of a leisure book there, but I say now if we're talking about like a work manuscript, when yeah. you when you try yeah, to yeah, romance yeah, okay, the okay, manuscript, okay, sure. Yeah, the phone definitely goes off. Wi-Fi goes off after you've got it all loaded up, um, and then you just and you sit somewhere else. You don't sit at your desk. You gotta like you know put a blanket around your legs or something. I always have a blanket around <laughs> I know my you legs. Do. It's weird, um, <laughs> but um, you know, and so you and you try. But I think that what's behind it is you're trying to recreate that living room feeling, you know. And maybe that's what's get. Maybe it's almost a question of space. It feels like I never read anywhere but my work desk anymore, as opposed to you know reading on the couch or reading you know in your bed or reading in any sort of place that. Um, do you like light a nice candle and like sit on your chair? No, no, no. I have and... lamps. 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 Yeah. I'm a big lighting guy. <laughs> <laughs> um, overhead light. You can't read with overhead light. No, You've you absolutely have. can't. Um, lamps are, lamps yeah, are yeah, bust. Yeah. But like it's just I find it such a funny exercise now how much effort has to go into trying to recreate that feeling of reading as it used to be because I feel like it's much harder to come by for me these days. And it's not like I like books any less because I – get you know I get just as excited going and buying a new book you know as I've ever done and I think that's maybe um you know some a sign that it's all kind of in the right place right now because I do really love it but um the act itself it always feels like isn't there some more productive th- th- isn't there some more productive reading you could be yeah. doing you know 
And that's that maybe that's it too. I realize I'm just like stream of consciousness now. But like um it's like now there's scales of productivity related to my reading. It's like reading is not reading is not reading. It's like there's work reading, there's, you know, freelance editing reading, there's fun reading. Uh, there's fun reading, there's reading for, you know, whatever little book club I'm in. There's all these different things and it's like man, you got to kind of prioritize even within your own reading list and I don't know. It has a way to start feeling like every other obligation in life, you know? Yeah. I I I have different like romancy yeah, yeah, yeah. things for each. Okay. So when I am reading for fun, uh-huh. I and and to be honest, this is mostly um like when I'm reading for fun, here's what I'll do. I'll go to my mom's house. Mm-hmm. And if it's in the summer, I have a special quilt that I've been using since I was a teenager. And I will go out into the backyard. She has a beautiful backyard. Yeah. We'll go out into the backyard and I will lay the the quilt out and mm-hmm. I will be in the shade, specifically the shade mm-hmm. under the big black walnut tree. And I will have a pillow and I will um, rotate in between reading on my tummy and reading <laughs> on my back. That's funny. Um. That's that's for fun. At um, when I'm reading, like in the winter, then mm. definitely some other person's cozy couch. Mm. When I am trying to like romance a manuscript, yeah. um, if it's before noon, yeah, I will go down to the only place in my apartment that I have natural light and sit on my big oversized red couch and like make a cocoon. Like, I'm always covered in blankets, you guys. Yeah. Like, when I was in college, I would carry around a blanket <coughs> yeah, just weird. in case. That's weird. I'm on the record I like being cozy. You only have one throw blanket in your entire house, and I'm thinking about buying you more just so but that I can have I'm some when I come over. I have one person in my house. What do I need more than one blanket for? Uh, One for your shoulders and one for your feet. That's ridiculous. It's not it's ridiculous. gratuitous. Anyway, I will create a little cocoon, like a straight jacket, so I can only, like... I only have enough to to like swipe with one finger, and oh, I just get like stuck. Yeah, yeah. Well, I read mm-hmm. on my iPad, and I just get I just like trap myself so that I can't just like get distracted and get up and go. Oh. Um. And so I can't reach my phone. I can't do anything. Okay. So I have this. The thing with that is with the distraction and go is I need to be able to like get up and wander around oh. while I read because like if I read like I'm someone who like when I read like a really good page or like really enjoy something I like stand up and like do a little lap around my Yeah, you get angry room. about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you got to like, you know, scrub the fridge or do a dish. <laughs> um like think about just the page. Just one dish. I often do just one dish. It's very cr- therapeutic. And you think blankets <laughs> are weird? <laughs> it's hard living alone, guys. Um <laughs> but no, um so I don't know. I mean, I guess so I feel like so much of, you know, the work that I try to do, and this is probably more specific to fiction because I don't think um, people who even people who really, really love like the sort of academic nonfiction are, you know, kind of having those same nostalgic experiences mm. reading them. You know, it's kind of a different ball game. But um, Guns, germs, and steel exactly, in the bath. Yeah, like, yeah, people aren't, yeah, I mean, people aren't necessarily getting lost in that world because it's, you know, it's our world. But yeah. Um, I feel like some with so much of fiction, for me, it's trying to. So I guess maybe we're fundamentally different in that way because my feeling is like anytime I even feel a little bit of a glimpse of that, 
while I'm reading a manuscript, it's like, all right, I need to start paying attention because maybe this book has that thing that everyone else I feel like is probably basing their um, reading decisions and their purchasing decisions on. And I don't know. I find that really interesting. Yeah. Seems like I'm just like constantly taking books on first dates and like trying to trying <laughs> yeah, to exactly. get laid the way that people women who read the Hunger Games on eHarmony <laughs> get laid. I don't know, I don't know, but it's you know like it's it's definitely an ongoing process. You know, figuring out what your your book life and your and your lifestyle yeah. is, and I think I think you and I are kind of coming to a fair and fine conclusion, which is, you know, creating rituals and and differentiating the different types of reading. And, you know, like personally, I've also turned to a lot of audiobooks Mm. um, so that I can get get away from that like guilt-free stuff and just kind of like get lost a little bit in another way. Um, So, yeah, I think... I think, you know, I would love to actually hear about other people's weird reading habits. Tweet Laura all your weird reading habits. And if they include blankets, don't, don't extra tweet. Don't. Yeah, you're weird. <laughs> <coughs> well, should we, should we do the pub tip? I think we should do the pub tip. Um, okay, so this week, um, it's, a, it's related to your queries, and it's a very simple thing, and I think we can all avoid it right now. Um, don't ask me any rhetorical questions or ask me to imagine anything. You're not Mr. Like, Movie Phone. Yeah, like don't exactly. imagine like, a world. Yeah, people do that. People do that thing at the beginning of their their emails where they tell me or like they present like a moral dilemma. Like, what would you do? Yeah, what would you? Yeah, exactly. It's like I don't want to think about it like that. And in fact, you're the one telling me what someone is going to do. So like, don't make me do the. Don't make it about, about me because yeah, yeah, you're yeah. supposed to be telling exactly. me about this fictional exactly. person. Exactly. Exactly. So like, it's just a quick little thing. Like, you can get rid of your rhetorical questions. If there's something in that question that you feel is worth repurposing, um, figure out a way to like say it in the you know the, as a statement as opposed to trying to be yeah movie trailer guy um, because. It just makes me irritated. <laughs> yeah, I automatically turn things down. Really? Well, I don't, with... I'm not that harsh, but it, it's um, I definitely don't think of it as a positive. Thank you so much for joining us on this our 29th episode of Print Run. Mm-hmm. Oh my goodness! Um, remember that our query show goes live this Thursday, May 11th. Our first pages show goes live Thursday, May 25th, um, and we will see you next week. Bye. <laughs>